I'm uh, Dr. Greg Juckett. We're going to be talking about bites and stings. And uh, Dr. Fisher wanted us to include snakes. So we're going to try to include snakes. Even though it's a tall order in about uh, a 40-minute talk, uh, but uh, I'm sure some of you have interesting snake and, and bug stories of your own. Um, apparently, there's a lot of interest in creepy crawlies uh, here. And if I do my job right, all of you will be itching by the time you leave, okay? And it all depends on how suggestible you are, but we may get there. I'm a, a family physician. I work at uh, West Virginia University. Uh, where I direct the travel clinic, and we do see a number of uh, stowaways come back on people, whether they have, you know, little rickettsial uh, scars, the tech noir, or uh, some of them even have jigger fleas uh, burrowed underneath their, their toes. So you don't have to necessarily uh, be practicing overseas sometimes to see some of these uh, conditions although it does help. And so we're going to look at, at arthropod uh, uh, stings and bites and also a little bit about snake bite injury, talk about the best methods of prevention and also look at clinical first aid for these conditions. Uh, I think probably the most important thing clinically is discussing anaphylaxis management with hymenoptera stings because most uh, stings... From, uh, and bites are nuisances more than life-threatening emergencies. But there are some that are life-threatening emergencies, and the, the one that we'll commonly see here would be uh, uh, Hymenoptera uh, bee and wasp stings. I've uh, highlighted some of the things that we have time to talk about. We'll look at spiders, scorpions, ants, bees, and wasps, uh, a little bit about uh, diptera, the mosquito bite, and, and tick bites. First of all, I'd like to talk about spider bites. You know, how many of you see spider bites in your, your practice? I mean, a, a lot of people. Uh, I happen to believe that the spiders are getting a bum rap on this and that a lot of what presents to us as spider bites may be, may be something else. There are only two dangerous species in the United States, the black widow and the brown recluse. Now, once you go overseas, your, your menu opens up, so to speak. But, uh, uh, you know, even the nasty-looking tarantulas are more painful than, than dangerous. Of course, the National Poison Control Center number is a good number to know with any envenomation. And that number, no matter what state you're in, is 800-222-1222. And it'll uh, direct you to the, the poison center in your state. Well, everybody knows about the black widow spider. These tend to occur in wood piles and crawl spaces. Uh, there are black widow spiders around the world, although they're of different species. And these bites uh, are usually just a little pinprick-like sensation followed by a halo. And then you get this incredible, crampy, intense pain. It's in the chest if you are bitten in the upper extremity, and it can be mistaken for myocardial infarction or heart attack, or it's often abdominal if, uh, and can mimic appendicitis if uh, a leg is, is bitten. Generally, though, it's only life-threatening to small children 
and perhaps the, the elderly. And there, there are actually several grades of this, and we all recognize the spider with the uh, telltale red hourglass on the abdomen. And you can find similar spiders in Kenya, which are also venomous, and other places where you might be doing uh, mission work. The name Latrodectus actually means robber biter, um, and uh, the bite looks like this finger here. Little, uh, it looks like a micro snake bite, perhaps. Two little fang marks. Uh, and the usual treatment is an ice pack, uh, updating the tetanus. And Valium is remarkably effective at relieving the muscle spasms and the pain. Sometimes a combination of Valium and narcotics. And most experts I've spoken to, uh, this has replaced the calcium gluconate that you often see listed in the textbooks or the robaxin that's also used uh, as a muscle relaxant. Uh, there is an antivenom for black widow spiders, but it is usually reserved for small children and the elderly where you have more severe uh, symptoms. And uh, it's, it's actually derived from uh, horse uh, use. The uh, brown recluse spider, on the other hand, uh, has uh, a tendency to bite indoors rather than outdoors. And this spider has that characteristic fiddleback on its uh, thorax. It's an inverted uh, fiddle. It also has six eyes instead of the usual eight eyes that spider has. Now, my personal theory is if you're counting the number of eyes on the spider, <laughs> you're entirely too close. Okay. <laughs> there, this is a, a new world spider, so it, it also exists in Central and South America. And there's a Chilean version, uh, Loxoscheles leta, which is even more toxic than the American species. It likes to hide under clothing and picture frames. It may be if you have clothing on the floor and you pick it up and you put it on, that, and the spider is living in the sleeve. When the spider is compressed between the fabric and your skin, it, it bites you. It's a cytolytic venom in this case rather than one causing muscle spasm. So it actually destroys tissue, it contains sphingomyelinase D. And you get a bite surrounded by an erythematous halo that turns different colors, and the skin can necrose. And we call this necrotic arachnidism, uh, if you like to attach fancy names to things. And there are actually a number of spiders around the world that can cause tissue necrosis and mimic the brown recluse bite. The only thing distinctive about the, the recluse spiders is that they tend to be specialists and do, the, do a very good job of, of doing this. Uh, it's rare that this ever causes fatality. Now, if you look here at the, the home range of the brown recluse, you will see that Louisville is uh, certainly within the range of this uh, spider. It exists in the south-central uh, United States. There are other spiders that can cause erratic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, necrosis of the skin, uh, but uh, to a lesser degree. A lot of people outside of the range of the brown recluse uh, blame the brown recluse for the spider bites and the skin necrosis cases that they have, sometimes un unjustly, I think. Um, it is true, though, that some of these spiders do move when you know, somebody from Louisville packs up and travels to Morgantown uh, they might bring along a few spiders with them in their clothing. Here are examples of uh, early bites and you know, later bites showing a, sort of a worst-case scenario there 
on the picture on the right. There's a vast differential diagnosis, though, for spider bite. And one of the things I'd like to tell you is that methicillin-resistant Staph aureus often resembles a spider bite at the outset when it first colonizes the skin. And people with that condition will often come to you uh, complaining that they, they were probably bitten by a spider. You know, nobody ever sees the spider that, that bit them. And so I tend to think that uh, these bites should be handled quite conservatively. Uh, you saw some articles that basically espoused, you know, heroic, and, and I think surgeons were proponents of this. If you see the spider bite, you just make a giant cut and you take out an area of skin that basically needs a skin graft. And you've done probably more damage than what the spider bite, if it was that, would have done. And if it was a MRSA infection, I'm not sure you've done the patient any favor by spreading that, that locally either. So good wound care. Don't cut out the bite site. Some people have suggested antihistamines. But the sad truth of spider bites is that there's no good evidence base for the management of a brown recluse bite. We suggest ice, uh, a tetanus update. But the dapsone therapy, and, and dapsone, by the way, uh, can inhibit white cell degranulation and is thought to theoretically at least reduce the risk of necrosis. Nobody has proven that that therapy really works. Uh, there are no, no good studies. Other people have suggested putting a transderm patch over the bite site to try to cause vasodilation. Some people have tried prednisone. And uh, although... None of these therapies sound that dangerous. I think that uh, most people do very well with conservative management of these, of these bites. And we can sometimes get uh, carried away uh, by seeing a, a picture like the one I showed you into overly aggressive management of, of spider bites and, and then harm our patients as a consequence. So when you see a spider bite, I want you to think MRSA, okay? And then think spider bite maybe. Uh, because that's probably, uh, you're going to see more MRSA than, than you will brown recluse bites. I can, I can pretty much guarantee it. Let's talk a little bit about scorpions. Uh, I don't know if any of you have lived in scorpion territory, but it can be a truly terrifying thing to shine an ultraviolet light around your room at night in scorpion territory. Uh, riboflavin in the scorpion exoskeleton uh, glows under UV light, and you can see these scorpions light up, and sometimes there'll be like 15 or so of these things crawling around uh, in your, your room that you were totally oblivious to. Try sleeping after that. Uh, <laughs> one of the concerns, of course, is these things can crawl into your shoes while you sleep because shoes are a nice, you know, warm cave. Uh, and, uh, of course, when you get up, what's the first thing you do? You slide your feet into that shoe and squish the scorpion and it stings you, which is the beginning of a very bad day <laughs> for both you and the scorpion, probably. Um, so a lot of people have this big open glass jar where scorpions can't climb this up and they keep it by their bedside and they, they put their shoes in this at night. So it keeps them from having to worry about uh, that in the morning. And the telson or the stinger, of course, of the scorpion is what does the damage. And uh, the Arizona bark scorpion, Centuroides, 
is probably the most dangerous uh, U.S. species, but fortunately it's limited to uh, parts of Arizona and Mexico. Like the spider bites, you treat this with ice and local hygiene, and you give a tetanus booster. Uh, but uh, in, in most scorpion bites, again, you treat them conservatively without uh, much more than pain medication. Um, this is the Centuroides scorpion, uh, the bark scorpion of Arizona that can cause neurotoxicity and uh, pretty severe uh, pain. There is an antivenom uh, for this. As a general rule with scorpions, if the, the claws are wimpy looking, the sting can be a problem. But if you've, if you've seen the emperor scorpion in pet shops, the one that they use in all the spy movies, uh, it has giant big lobster-like claws, looks ferocious, but its sting is no more toxic than a regular bee sting would be in terms of the pain that you experience. So the, the, the scorpions with big claws tend to uh, have a minor sting and vice versa. And I think Indiana Jones referred to that in his last, uh, last movie. The Boothidae family of scorpions, for those of you who are traveling abroad, tend to be the, the worst of the bunch. And Centuroides is one of the Boothidae scorpions. These have a triangular sternal plate and small claws and pack a major punch with their sting. And depending upon where you're working, you may encounter some of these different species. So it helps you to try to figure out what species you might have to deal with. There's one Indian scorpion called uh, Hemiscorpius that is a non-boothid scorpion that can be pretty, pretty toxic uh, as well. So uh, boothid scorpions have tiny claws, but a very toxic venom. And these are the ones you need to watch out for Worldwide, It's interesting that scorpions are being abused in India. Uh, people uh, pay for a scorpion-induced high, and they basically uh, uh, have uh, the scorpion put on this, their skin, and then they torment it until it uh, stings them. And then they get this high, floaty feeling that uh, some people actually pay money for. So as the Internet says, remember, kids, just say no to arachnids. Okay. <laughs> That, that brings me to Hymenoptera, uh, and this is where deaths occur. And I always will remember the patient who walked into my waiting room after being stung by a yellow jacket, sat down there, and then I suddenly got stat paged, and, and she was down on the floor in anaphylactic shock and not breathing and uh, as blue as could be. And, you know, you rush back, you get intubation, you give the epinephrine, you do everything that you can. And, and her life was saved in that particular instance. But boy, you know, that was, that was close. And unfortunately, this can walk into your office and suddenly, you know, you're just going about a routine day's activity. You're dealing with a life and death issue. Um, the Hymenoptera consists of three families. There's the ants, the bees, and the wasps, basically. Of course, they're social and solitary bees. Um, Bees are more allergenic, uh, especially the honeybee. But the wasps include not only the paper wasps and the yellow jacket, which, by the way, most people in West Virginia and probably in Kentucky call this a bee. All right? So when they tell you they're stung by a bee, very often it's a, a yellow jacket, which is truly a wasp. And then there's the bald face hornet, which is sort of a super wasp. 
The wasp venom contains a lot of serotonin, and serotonin is the cause of the intense pain that you get from a wasp sting. The other characteristic of wasp stings is that they have non-barbed stingers, so they can sting you multiple times. They can just keep it up, okay? Whereas a honeybee has a barb stinger, and when it stings you and then pulls, flies away, the uh, stinger remains behind along with the venom sac. And if you watch this carefully, if, if you're objective enough to do this when you're stung, it, you can actually see this little venom sac pulsing away, pumping the venom in, and the, the bee is eviscerated and falls, you know, dies soon after the sting. He sacrificed, or she has sacrificed her life, you know, for the sake of the hive. Now, honeybee stings contain a lot of melatonin, about 50% melatonin, but the, the thing that causes the anaphylactic shock is usually phospholipase A, uh, which is the most allergenic uh, component of bee venom. There's also something called adolapine in bee venom, and this is why people use bee stings to treat their rheumatoid arthritis. It has an anti-inflammatory effect. Of course, you risk having anaphylactic shock uh, doing that, and it takes somebody of considerable gumption to you know, to apply a bee to their skin to purposefully sting themselves. But there are people like that out there. Um, basically, you've all heard the different therapies. I usually apply ice to a sting. Some people use baking soda paste or antihistamine or even meat tenderizer. Uh, most of that is probably more psychological because it doesn't really get down to the sting site. But ice is very effective. And antihistamines can be very, very useful, too. You get this immediate local reaction, you know, the pain and the swelling on the erythema. Uh, and uh, uh, antihistamines are quite useful for that. For most people, that's a 10 or 15-minute ordeal, and then it uh, is over with. But a lot of you may have seen but may not have recognized what's called the late-phase hypersensitivity reaction. And this is where you get a large area of erythema or heat or tenderness that develops usually within 48 hours. After the original sting and swelling have resolved, there appears to be what looks like cellulitis that develops on the arm or the leg where somebody was stung. A red area develops that's swollen, hot, uh, tender, and this can last for a week or so and closely resembles cellulitis, but it's not. It's a late-phase local reaction, and it responds beautifully to a course of prednisone in terms of going down. So prednisone, not antibiotics, are usually the, the best option uh, for this. If there's a history of you having this, you can avoid it by starting it right after the sting occurs. But the thing that you need to know is that neither of these local reactions, reactions limited to one area, require insect sting desensitization, okay? Uh, what does and these are the, some sting reactions. One is edema of the lip, and another is just a local uh, sting of the skin. Now, I once uh, was going through heavy brush and had a wasp fly up my nose and sting me near the cribriform plate, it seemed, because I cannot describe the amount of pain from that. And my nose swelled up to the size of a horse's, I think, after that. <laughs> This shows you uh, how the stinger is left behind with uh, a honeybee sting. And one uh, technique that they do recommend uh, if you have the 
again, the presence of mind to do this. Instead of grabbing it with your forefingers and pulling it off, often emptying the venom sack you know, into you, scraping it off with a credit card or a piece of plastic is very effective. But you'll have to do that within a second or so. Otherwise, it's going to get the... Uh, so by the time I get my wallet out, my credit card out, that venom sack has probably emptied itself already. So, And uh, having trained in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm more than familiar with fire ant stings. These are uh, an imported ant from Argentina that uh, is, uh, lives in large colonies. And you quickly learn to recognize this if you're in fire ant country, which is the southeast. It doesn't like cold winters. Very fortunate for us in West Virginia. But uh, the ant will grab you with its mandibles and then sting you four or five times with its stinger while it's anchored there. And it just arches its body up and then stings in a rosette around where it's, it's grabbed you. Now, imagine that there are 50 ants attached to you, all inflicting five or six stings each. And imagine that each of those stings feels like a red-hot poker is going into you. You get the experience of what a fire ant sting is like. And you notice these white bumps on the person's arm there. Those are sterile pustules, which are basically uh, a consequence of the sting. Fortunately, anaphylaxis is pretty rare with fire ant stings. Uh, they contain, the venom contains piperidine alkaloids. And these characteristic pustules require no antibiotics, just a cold pack and a tetanus update if they're, if they're due for one. If you get systemic symptoms like hives, respiratory, or cardiovascular symptoms, you do need to consider carrying an EpiPen, EpiPen uh, for emergency self-treatment. And uh, also, uh, you know, perhaps insect sting uh, desensitization or immunotherapy. And anaphylaxis usually occurs within 30 minutes of a sting, occasionally after an hour, uh, but it's rare that it's any uh, time after that, usually within the first 30 minutes to an hour. 20% of people can have what's called delayed or biphasic anaphylaxis, where they, they get they're treated for the anaphylaxis, but then three to five hours later, they have a relapse, and they die at home after being discharged from the emergency room. You do not want that to happen uh, to you. Uh, so all... Anaphylaxis uh, patients should be observed for at least six hours after treatment rather than discharged when they're looking good because of that risk of that biphasic delayed reaction in some people. Most adults die within an hour of the sting uh, if they do have anaphylaxis. And unfortunately, there are no predictive risk factors other than a prior anaphylactic reaction. I had one uh, uh, friend, a colleague of mine, who was, uh, had been stung at least a dozen times. And then one summer he was in the garden, he was stung, and he went into anaphylactic shock. He was home alone. He literally crawled into the house. In his medicine cabinet, there was one little vial of epinephrine that was probably about 15 years old and had turned uh, a rather brown color. And he opened it with his teeth, and uh, was able to inject it uh, because he had a syringe there, and he's convinced it saved his life. But no prior you know, uh, problem before then. 
The epinephrine, of course, can be given sub-Q or IM. I recommend giving it IM. It's the 1 to 1,000.3 cc's usually. And given IM, this is the cornerstone of anaphylactic therapy, and it can be life-changing. I do not go on a mission trip without epinephrine available. And I've been on treks and other things where we have encountered wasps and, or have been stung multiple times. Uh, it's not true that bees won't sting an idiot because they have gotten me more than once. But the fact is, is you never know if somebody in your party or your group could have an anaphylactic reaction. And you do want to be prepared for that. Epinephrine is also helped with the presence of diphenhydramine. But don't depend on diphenhydramine alone to control an anaphylactic reaction. Normal saline corrects the hypotension. Albuterol inhaler can help with the bronchospasm. Oxygen and, uh, and also in some people on beta blocker therapy, you should know that they are often unresponsive or minimally responsive to epinephrine and you may need to give glucagon IV in somebody who's on beta blockers. I always ask about bee sting allergies before I start a uh, hypertensive medicine for patients because um, if they have a, a bad bee sting allergy, a beta blocker, you could view that as a relative contraindication to beta blocker uh, therapy uh, just because if they did have a reaction, they'll be more likely to die even with uh, correct therapy. So uh, in summary for, for insect stings, at least a six-hour minimum uh, observation period for an anaphylaxis uh, case. Uh, adults are more at risk for dying than children, which is contrary to what you might imagine. Uh, bee stings are more likely to cause anaphylaxis than wasp stings, but because yellow jackets are so much more common and so much more aggressive, we probably do see more, more cases of anaphylaxis with yellow jacket stings at our institution. Avoid beta blockade in at-risk patients and avoid reliance on just oral antihistamines in a case of severe hives or uh, something that might be leading to anaphylaxis because epinephrine is really the drug of choice for this. And Benadryl will not stop an anaphylactic reaction by itself. Steroids like solumedrol given uh, during the anaphylactic episode will not help you immediately, but it will help prevent that relapse later on. A word about uh, bed bugs, and this is where people will probably start to itch uh, a little bit, but bed bugs are making an amazing uh, comeback, and we are starting to see bed bug bites routinely, and for years, these things have been nearly eradicated. There are actually two species out there. Well, there's a, a human and a bat bed bug. So if you have a bat infestation in your attic, the, the bats may actually bring bed bugs into your house. And bat bed bugs have no compunction whatsoever about feeding off human beings. If, uh, they might prefer the bats. There's also a tropical bed bug as well. Now, one of the characteristic uh, things that you get with bed bug bites are these larger red itchy papules, unlike chigger bites, which tend to occur at the belt line or on the tops of socks, bed bug bites tend to be on the trunk or extremities and be in clusters of three or four. Actually, we call the cluster of three the breakfast, lunch, and dinner sign 
because the individual bed bug tends to feed three times before he's satiated uh, in a night. And so uh, you often get these lumps. And, and, and the regular bug bombs that we buy often are ineffective for bed bugs. They're very difficult to eradicate, and you often need professional help. Uh, there's actually this website. It's a, it's a commercial site called bugclinic.com that gives you some advice here. We don't think that bed bugs actually inject infectious uh, organisms like hepatitis B into uh, people with their blood meals. So they're probably not vectors in the traditional sense. However, they have, there's an interesting study that looked at external bacterial colonization of the bed bugs, and a lot of them are colonized with drug-resistant bacteria like MRSA uh, and may actually be vectors at spreading this uh, on the external parts of their, their body. The, uh, so red itchy pat, uh, papules, people treat with very high temperatures, but uh, it has to be over around 120 degrees Fahrenheit to kill the bed bugs in your house, and that's very difficult without sealing off a room, or actually liquid nitrogen or freezing uh, treatments. They often hide behind the headboard of a bed that's been screwed or mounted onto the wall. And so they, they find little places of refuge there when you take your mattress apart and, and sp spray the box springs in the mattress. So there's some interesting sites. One at the University of Kentucky has a lot of information about bed bugs if you're interested. Dipteran insects like sandflies, mosquitoes, uh, and so forth cause a great amount of misery from itchy bites. We've all experienced the mosquito bites, which fortunately in this country are usually just nuisance bites. But they can also be vectors of pretty serious diseases around the world. The mosquito alone is responsible for malaria, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis, dengue, West Nile virus, St. Louis, Louis encephalitis, and uh, some other arboviruses. So... Um, it's public enemy number one when it comes to uh, disease. Of course, these are the little red itchy uh, papules, uh, and it's really a histamine release reaction, an allergic reaction. Some people are super attractive to mosquitoes. They're attracted to the carbon dioxide, but other people are repellent to mosquitoes. I find that I have no trouble whatsoever if I invite my wife to go out with me. All the mosquitoes go to her, being a sweet, the sweet thing that she is, and they leave me alone. It's only if I'm out by myself and they have no alternative that they'll feed on me. Uh, so bring along somebody who's more attractive than you, at least to the bug kingdom. Uh, not everybody is equally reactive. Some people can be bitten and not have any reaction whatsoever. And it's a little known fact that you have to be sensitized to mosquitoes and to bed bugs to break out. Half of people who are being fed on by bed bugs have no allergic reaction and have no idea that they're being parasitized. Uh, and it's only after you become... So think about that when you go home. <laughs> sort of like the silent MI, you know. I'm not having pain. Could I be having a heart attack? And, you know, the same thing with bed bugs. But the, the fact is the absence of symptoms does not necessarily mean that you haven't been exposed. And we've had people who swore who came back with malaria and swore that they never had a mosquito bite. But indeed, they never had an allergic reaction to a mosquito bite. But they were bitten, uh, certainly. 
you may have heard of something called Skeeter syndrome, which is a, a super severe local reaction to people who are hypersensitized to mosquitoes. And this can resemble cellulitis, just like the late phase sting reaction can resemble a cellulitis. It's due to allergenic polypeptides in the mosquito saliva. And basically, when these things feed on you, whether it's a bed bug or a mosquito, they inject saliva underneath the skin, and then you get this allergic reaction once you're sensitized that itches for a day or two. And of course, the problem isn't so much the bite, it's, it's eliminating the exposure, the continued exposure to whatever it is that's biting you. That is the challenge when you're dealing with cases like this. And antihistamines, again, are the treatment of choice. Ticks are uh, divided into hard and soft categories. If you want to avoid tick bites, use permethrin spray on your clothes. If you want to avoid insect bites on your skin, use a DEET-containing repellent or a repellent that contains picaridin. Uh, I recommend, yes? What's that? Very good question. Um, the amount of DEET that is effective uh, will probably be in the neighborhood of 20 to 35 percent that we recommend. The higher the concentration of DEET, the longer it protects you. About 35% will protect you for about six hours or so. But once you get over 50%, the benefits start to plateau out. You start to get more skin absorption and not that much more protection. So I do not recommend the 100% DEET preparations that you can purchase. I recommend 35% DEET. Uh, there are... Uh, 35% sustained release DEET preparations. One of them is called Ultrathon, and the U.S. military uses that, and that's good for 12 hours of protection. DEET should go on your exposed skin, ideally. Um, you know, sunscreen should go on first. The insect repellent should go on after that. But I think 35% is probably an ideal concentration to look for. If you use uh, picaridin, also known as Bay Repel, uh, that's about 20% that's effective. Um, and then for your clothing, a permethrin spray, and some of the lice bedding spray preparations have permethrin in them, uh, on your fabric will kill mosquitoes or other insects that land on them and is very effective for ticks. So when I go out in a field uh, at our farm in West Virginia, I spray my jeans with permethrin before I go out. And that really makes a big difference in terms of keeping the ticks off. You probably know that you should not remove ticks by uh, you know, uh, uh, using the lighted match or other things that just irritate the tick and make him uh, regurgitate into your, uh, when he's attached. This can actually increase your risk of uh, exposure to Lyme disease or other diseases. They do have this little tick remover that where you could just sort of pry them off uh, with that very gently. But the other approach is to take the tick and just gradually, with gentle pressure, pull on him until he detaches. And then, of course, wash your hands afterwards and wash the area out. It's not routine to put everybody on doxycycline after uh, tick bites, although many people do want that because they're afraid of this condition called Lyme disease. Okay. Now, we don't have, and, and that is treated with doxycycline. We do, I don't want to shortchange snake bites, and we do have to cover a lot in a short time. There are five venomous snake families, but there are really two that are important to know about. 
One are the vipers, and these include our North American pit vipers like the rattlesnakes, copperheads, and moccasins, and also the elapid snakes. The only American elapid is the coral snake, but if you work in the tropics, you'll also encounter cobras, crates, mambas, and other members of this family. And these, of course, are highly dangerous snakes because they kill through neurotoxicity. Despite how much we fear elapid snakes because they cause death rapidly, it's the vipers that cause most snake bite mortality. And by far, the greater number of people die from these. Vipers and pit vipers, which is a subfamily, the crotalid subfamily of the vipers, have venom that is hemotoxic and cytotoxic. It means it digests and destroys blood, and it causes local tissue necrosis. It basically digests your skin, and it's designed to pretty much digest the snake's food. Um, and you are just an incidental victim. Probably the saw-scaled viper, also known as the carpet viper of Africa, the Middle East, and even extends into India, kills more snakes than any other uh, snake in the world. This is an example. There are two snakes. The, the, the one on the right is a Malayan pit viper. The snake pictured uh, is a puff adder, and the arm above is a puff adder bite showing the blebs of skin. And this, this arm is basically being digested by the snake venom. The only effective treatment for this is antivenom, something to counteract this. Uh, this is a picture of a fertilance uh, bite in the Brazilian Amazon that I saw in a child's leg. And it basically has digested a good part of his leg. And in addition, uh, this happens more overseas than in the United States. We see lots of rhabdomyolysis because of the breakdown of muscle, muscle tissue and the urine becomes dark, and then the kidneys shut down if, there's, if this is not flushed out, uh, leading to renal failure. And it's not uncommon in Southeast Asia to have somebody walk into your clinic having survived a viper bite, but who's kid, in kidney failure now and who's going to die from the kidney failure uh, caused by this rhabdomyolysis uh, from the snake bite. Elapids have a neurotoxic venom, and this attacks the nervous system. It causes respiratory paralysis. And these are the snakes that can kill you very rapidly in hours uh, from respiratory failure. On the other hand, vipers usually take about three days to kill you, unless you're unfortunate enough to get a, a fang directly uh, putting venom into the vein, uh, in which case all bets are off. The neurotoxic sea snakes also are very similar to elapids. Lots of elapid snakes, like coral snakes or crates, there's almost no local reaction where the snake bit you. The first sign of the envenomation may be drooping eyelids or ptosis, followed by you know, a respiratory paralysis and death. And this is a, a gentleman who was bitten by a crate, uh, which is a highly venomous uh, Asian snake and uh, it causes a lot of mortality. Colubrids, or rear fang snakes, are less venomous uh, and have somewhat viper-like envenomations, and the boom slang would be an example of one of these, but they're less medically important. I'm going to show you some of the North American venomous snakes. 
But fortunately, only about five people a year are dying in North America from venomous snake bite. And a lot of these are what we call non-legitimate bites. Okay, we divide snake bites into legitimate bites where you're just walking through a field of high grass and a snake nails you, and what we call non-legitimate bites. A typical example in our emergency room is a drunk coming home uh, intoxicated. He sees a copperhead going across the highway. He, he stops his car in the middle of the road. The snake tries to crawl underneath his car. He grabs it by the tail, pulls it out. The snake turns around and bites him several times. Okay, he had no business messing with the snake. Uh, it was an illegitimate bite. And the joke is, and you know, they were they were bashing different states in the South earlier, but they're these the tease of non-legitimate snake bites. You know, usually the victims are wearing a T-shirt, preferably one with NASCAR on it. Uh, they've got tattoos. They've been drinking, so that's tequila. They may have an absence of teeth, uh, and uh, they live in a trailer, and they hail from Tennessee. <laughs> now, of course, being from West Virginia, I could easily have this redirected against me, too. So, but uh, we recognize that drinking and certain behaviors, I think, make people susceptible uh, to snake bite. And my apologies to all of you from Tennessee out there. Okay. So again, pit vipers have cytotoxic venom. Uh, these are the fangs. Notice that this one snake has two fangs on one side. And by the way, and so you can have three fang marks. Or a fang could be torn off and you could have one fang mark. And there's also a ridge of replacement fangs. So pulling the fangs out do not prevent them from regrowing. This is the northern copperhead, the, uh, the water moccasin or cottonmouth which is in the southeast and often confused with the brown water snake. And probably the most dangerous U.S. snake is one of our rattlesnakes, the diamondback uh, rattler. There's eastern and western types. I, the coral snake is found in the extreme southeast. We had these in Charleston, South Carolina. But you have to really work at getting one of these to bite you. They've got short fangs. If you are bitten, it's pretty serious. And we have this little rhyme to distinguish the snake from other look-alike snakes is called Red Touch Yellow Kill a Fellow, Red Touch Black, Fear May Lack. Okay? Now, that's true only in the United States. When you get down below Mexico City, if any of you are working in Central or South America, all bets are off because you have all sorts of different variations in, the, in, the, in South America, some of which are very poisonous. And you notice that Red Touch touches black in the Brazilian coral snake. Uh, and, if you, and some herpetologists have picked these things up thinking that uh, the, the rhyme works in, uh, overseas, and it doesn't. <laughs> so how do you prevent snake bites? Well, you wear protective clothing and boots. Most snake bites, especially in the developing world, most snake bites in the developing world occur because people are working barefoot. And in Africa, the, the cobra bites we saw were women out towing fields of ground nuts without any shoes on. If they had proper footwear, most of those bites would have been avoided. Okay? And uh, if you're going out after dark and walking barefoot or in sandals, 
by all means, have a flashlight to shine on your path because a lot of these snakes are nocturnal and, and you can easily step on them you know, without being aware of it. Most snakes do not actually pursue you and try to bite. Watch where you step and place your hands. Avoid tall brush and undergrowth. Don't pick up a, a recently killed snake. This is something people need to know. Snakes can bite through reflex action. And if, even if you chop the head off a snake, it's perfectly capable of biting you. You should view it as a very short snake, okay? Uh, and there have been a lot of cases where people have killed a snake, picked it up, and the snake gets its revenge posthumously by, by nailing them you know, through reflex action. And it can still inject venom, okay? Don't keep venomous snakes as pets. We had a case of Egyptian cobra envenomation in Morgantown. Somebody was keeping it as a pet in their trailer, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he was from West Virginia, not Tennessee, though. And, uh, and, and while he was cleaning the cage, this thing nailed him. Unfortunately, it was during a blizzard, so the helicopter with the antivenin couldn't... Uh, uh, take off from uh, Pittsburgh where we could get the nearest uh, antivenom. And uh, he survived, but he had a $15,000 bill. You know, so that's an expensive pet to keep. First aid. And, you know, we have totally different recommendations from what you might have been taught before. We want to remove rings, watches, any tight clothes, of course, you try to reassure the victim who's usually in a state of panic at this time. And you're probably in a state of panic, too. So the reassurance helps both of you function more calmly in this set, set, setting. We, unless you have the equipment to do so, we don't really want you to catch or kill the snake because sometimes we've had people trying to catch the snake and they get bitten, too, and then you've got two or three snake bites instead of one snake bite to deal with. Uh, but try to get a good look at it. We, of course, do not cut the fang marks or suck it out anymore, especially with your mouth. Sawyer extractors or venom extractors are still manufactured, but they're only minimally effective and then only so within about three minutes. Minimal amounts of venom have been removed. Now, I know it says scientifically proven to extract snake venom. The paper that is there basically states was they injected water as surrogate snake venom, and then it sucked the water out of the wound. But actual snake venom has a consistency very much like thick honey. And so when it's injected into the wound, it doesn't suck out very effectively at all. So we really don't bother with venom extractors. We do not use arterial tourniquets. As a matter of fact, a lot of people lose limbs from misguided attempts at snake bite first aid by cutting off the blood supply to the extremity, and, it's, and people who really weren't envenomated very much often end up with terrible uh, limb damage because of that. It is optional to put on what's called a constriction band that you can slide a finger underneath, and it, it just cuts down on the lymphatic flow, but not the blood flow uh, to the extremity. And you should be able to slide a finger underneath. Unlike spider bites, you don't use ice. And by all means, and this gets me into trouble at some mission conferences, do not use electric shock, okay, which has been, you know, was widely popularized for a while in the 90s as a snake bite uh, uh, treatment to inactivate venom. They've done numerous studies now on 
laboratory animals showing that electric shock does nothing to inactivate the toxicity of venom. It may affect your pain threshold by distracting you, just like when you've got a headache, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you forget the headache for a while, but uh, it does not do anything to reduce the toxicity of the venom. And then transport as soon as possible to the hospital where you can get antivenom care. And the primary antivenom right now is, um, this is the Sawyer extractor that doesn't work. The primary antivenom <laughs> is uh, Crofab in the United States. But they're polyvalent and they're monovalent antivenoms. Monovalent antivenoms are just for one snake species. Polyvalent are for several. And Crofab, which is actual, an actual modified sheep um, antibody to pit viper venom, is the only uh, venom, uh, antivenom we have in the United States now for rattlesnake and water moccasin and uh, copperhead bites. Elapid bites, by the way, are treated with this compression dressing, which shuts down lymphatic flow of the venom. The reason we don't do these for pit viper bites is we don't want to localize the tissue destruction in the limb. But for the less toxic uh, or less uh, tissue toxic, I should say, uh, uh, elapid venoms, this system works very, very well. I'm going to have to stop here because we're out of time. And uh, I appreciate your attention. It's been very interesting going over this. I'm sure some of you have some questions. Feel free to come up. I do have to leave in about three minutes, though, because I've got another lecture down the hall. So I apologize. I will be around tonight if you have further questions or want to share a snake story with me. Thanks very much. Hey, good to see you. I remember staying with your family.